sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I uh, do hope that our listeners found some suitable way to enjoy their uh, Valpurgisnacht or May Day, which also happens to mark Bonesickle's fourth anniversary. Happy birthday to us! Yes, uh, I, I did hear from one listener who was lucky enough to attend the uh, Padstow Abios event, the Hobby Horse uh, event in Cornwall. Well, maybe next year we can have something here. Uh, you mean the high school thing? They didn't rule it out. It was a disaster. No, not entirely. Not really. Uh, Mrs. Carswell is referring to my uh, misguided efforts at uh, community outreach. We had a meeting with the special activities director at a nearby high school to see if they'd be interested in having a traditional May Day event. It wasn't even a meeting. It was just a disaster. I know you think it was my fault. Because of the bees. I just don't understand how you didn't see the bees before we went inside. It was so chaotic. I didn't notice till we were in the building. You were already upset about the costume. I didn't want to upset you more by telling you about the bees. My driver, uh, Mr. Quincy, was good enough to agree to wear a uh, Jack in the Green costume I'd created years ago. Um, it's a sort of uh, wickerwork frame covered in greenery. Uh, kind of like a green man, and I thought having a bit of ready-made eye candy like that might help sell the idea. That's why I wore the May Queen crown. Yes, with the bees. There were only two following me. They can't resist zinnias. <sighs> and the costume was strapped to the roof for the drive over, but he'd done a lousy job, and part of it blew off in the road, and we were already late, and there was no time to go back and get it or to make repairs, so... He just looked like something half-eaten when we arrived. But we couldn't get it through the security x-ray check anyway, so it doesn't matter. And that guard was quite rude, and we'll be hearing from my attorney. I think I made that clear. We kind of got off to a bad start. But we did have Mrs. Carswell and her crown of bees, and the moment the director stepped out of her office, there were about a half-dozen girls in the hall all screaming about bees. They did say we could come back and talk later. M maybe do something in June. <laughs> yes, they wanted us to be part of their pride event, which wasn't really what I had in mind. Mr. Quincy was so sorry about the costume. I think he drinks. Let's just do the show. Okay. Episode 87, The Seeress, Germanic Tribes, Vikings, and Witches. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. 
I started the show as a way to further explore this uh, area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including a, a short bonus episode. I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. comes from the wonderful Robert Eggers film, The Northman. The whispering voice belongs to Bjork, who appears briefly in the film as a seeress, what's known in Old Norse or the Icelandic sagas as a vulva, and the plural would be vulvur. The essential characteristic of the vulva is her ability to see the future and all that is hidden. She may also perform acts of magic, like witches or wise women, or sometimes uh, serve the role of a priestess. They were always female. Male magicians are fairly rare in Norse literature, with the exception of Odin, of course, and even more rarely are males uh, the ones uttering prophecies. In addition to the term vulva, Old Norse has another word used more or less identically, spalkona. Spal means a prophetic utterance, and through the uh, Anglo-Saxons uh, provided English, uh, the words spay wife, an archaic word for a fortune teller used mainly in Scotland. Um, archaic, but uh, still in use in Robert Louis Stevenson's day as he did write a poem by that name, the spay wife. The word vulva literally means one who bears the staff. The uh, staff functioning both as a sign of status and presumably a magic wand. Not only are staffs or staves associated with the vulva in historical texts, but uh, archaeology seems to uh, back up this association. In Denmark, near the uh, Fyrkat uh, Ring Fortress, there's a 9th century grave of a woman believed to be a vulva. She is uh, clearly an individual of some status as she's buried within a horse-drawn carriage. She's also wearing um, unusual silver toe rings and a dress stitched with valuable gold thread. Further grave goods more specifically suggest that she may have been a witch, a wand or iron staff with bronze fittings, and a small purse containing henbane seeds, a hallucinogenic plant that could have been used to produce her uh, oracular trances. Another small box buried with her contains owl pellets and bird bones, possibly also used for magic. In southern Sweden's Östergötland, there's another high-status female buried in a carriage as well, and also with another iron wand. The grave also contains skeletal horses that were to draw that carriage into the next world, and other valuable imported goods. Also in Sweden, on the island of Öland, another Viking Age grave was excavated to reveal a female skeleton wrapped in bear skins, buried with a bronze ornamented wand and bronze cauldron. 
It also contained bones of uh, animals and humans who may have been sacrificed as part of the funeral. Other uh, females buried with wands have also been found in uh, Jävla, Sweden, and uh, Ringsta in Denmark. Spa, the word related to uh, spay wife, as mentioned, is the uh, form of Norse magic specific to the uh, vulva and her prophecies. Though it's not explicit in any text, it's often assumed that a trance or ecstatic state was a prerequisite to the seer's prognostications. Uh, perhaps something produced through chanting, which is mentioned in a few Völva stories. And uh, this sort of chanting in Nordic magic would be known as Galder, which would be uh, translated as... Spell. As well as... Chanting or singing. There's a vestige of this word, uh, galen, G-A-L-E-N, in our English word for the night singing, nightingale. However, this uh, singing magic isn't really described in terms of the ecstatic repetition we'd associate with trances, or rather it's uh, more of a matter of very specific verbal formulations, which in themselves are responsible for the magic. Uh, drumming has also been suggested as a means by which the vulva produced a trance, and uh, though it's never explicitly mentioned, it's a natural association as the drum is uh, absolutely central to the shamanic practices of the uh, Sami people neighboring the Scandinavian uh, Germanic people in the north and east. In fact, the uh, Sagras repeatedly characterize Volur and uh, other magicians as coming from or practicing the magic of these regions to the north and east. For centuries, even the uh, Germans uh, down in mainland Europe regarded uh, Finland and Lapland as uh, home to uh, particularly powerful magicians. The general Norse word for witchcraft, something that might also be practiced by the Volva, is seder or seder, the latter spelled in the Old Norse or Icelandic way with the F, that is, the D with a slash. I'll be using the former pronunciation, seder. And while we're at it, there's also another plural for Volva, volvur, as well as uh, volur, which is what I'm using. A number of potential etymologies suggest different origins for this word for magic, seder. One connects it with the word for binding or ensnaring, another for boiling, uh, related to our word seethe, and that connects it with the practice of boiling water to produce salt, and by implication the cauldron magic of the Scottish witches of Macbeth and their fire burn and cauldron bubble. Still, another etymology connects it to a word for chair, as uh, special elevated seating is mentioned in quite a number of uh, Vulva accounts, which uh, could relate the word to our English usage of terms like uh, psychic sittings, or the French word séance. Seder can have a, a darker reputation than other forms of uh, Nordic magic, the uh, usually female witch or seder kona can use it to do anything from racing storms to transforming herself into an animal. But uh, seder in particular is uh, used to describe magic that manipulates the mind of its uh, object, that uh, clouds the memory or seduces or produces sleep or unconsciousness. 
In historic texts, the Vulva needn't be exactly human. She can be, but can also have a foot in the non-human world, or be a sort of creature unto herself. I mentioned the uh, term Sederkona, which is a common word for witch, meaning literally witch-wife. But she can also be a Trollkona, and uh, witchcraft could be described as a Trolldomen, using the word uh, troll rather differently than we're used to, as a designation here for uh, anything of the uh, fairy world, rather than specifically that creature who hides under bridges or eats Christians. This uh, more mythologized figure is often what's discussed in the medieval Scandinavian texts, the uh, sagas and eddas, but we get a different perspective from the Romans, who also encountered Germanic tribes on mainland Europe, peoples who would have shared the same cultural DNA as the uh, Scandinavians. These Roman accounts are framed more as uh, history or even ethnography than as uh, mythological tales, and they seem to convey a real-world social reality that would have been the basis for the more legendary characters. Early in their contact with Germanic tribes, Romans noticed a special role women played among these people. Julius Caesar remarked on this in his commentary on the Gallic Wars. Among the Germans, it was the custom for their matrons to pronounce from lots and divination whether it were expedient that the battle should be engaged in or not. Caesar's brief remark from 58 BCE pertains to the Suebi people who'd moved from what's now Germany across the Rhine into France. But 11 years later, we get a more detailed account of uh, Völva-like figures leading the Bructeri people in the region that would become Holland. In the year 69, the Bructeri people had joined an alliance of German tribes in what's known as the Batavian Revolt, led by the Batavians, a small tribe occupying the Rhine Delta in modern Holland. The military leader of the Batavians was their hereditary prince and a veteran of the Roman army, actually, Gaius Julius Civilis. But this commander took no actions without consulting a powerful Vulva, a virgin by the name of Veleda. After the Batavians inflicts a series of embarrassing defeats on Roman forces, attempts were made to appease the Germans with gifts, namely one of their own offered as a slave. Tacitus explains in his histories, The legionary commander, Munius Lupercus, was sent along with other presents to Veleda, a maiden who enjoyed wide influence over the tribe of the Brukteri. The Germans traditionally regard many of the female sex as prophetic, and indeed by an excess of superstition as divine. This was a case in point. Veleda's prestige stood high, for she had foretold the German successes and the extermination of the legions. Lupercus, however, ends up being ambushed and killed on route. So, while Veleda does not acquire a Roman slave, she does receive a Roman ship captured by the Batavians, a galleon which the Batavians rowed some distance up the Lippa River to be presented as tribute. Roman troops, who'd temporarily been reduced to eating horses in their besieged garrison, eventually do gain the upper hand again, and the Batavians are forced to surrender. 
Tacitus describes the negotiations on behalf of the Romans headquartered in Cologne, Germany. A delegation was sent to Civilis and Valera with gifts, which obtained from them everything that the people of Cologne desired. Yet the delegates were not allowed to approach Valera herself and address her directly. They were kept from seeing her to inspire them with more respect. She herself lived in a high tower. One of her relatives, chosen for the purpose, carried to her the questions and brought back her answers, as if he were the messenger of a god. Later, in his ethnographic volume, Germania, Tacitus reflects a bit more on these Germanic beliefs. They even believe that there is something holy and an element of the prophetic in women. Hence, they neither scorn their advice nor ignore their predictions. He adds, And in former times, too, they revered Albruna and a number of other women. Who seems to have played a similar role with the same Germanic tribes, though at some earlier period, probably around the dawning of the Common Era. Her name, scholars speculate, may relate to the Germanic word Alp, meaning elf, and uh, being attached to various things supernatural. Cassius Dio also mentions a Germanic priestess, possibly a vulva, visiting Rome in the year 86. Matthews, king of the Simonis, and Ganna, a virgin, who is priestess in Germany, having succeeded Valera, came to Domitian and after being honored by him, returned home. It seems the Semnonists by this time had replaced the Batavians as the foremost of the Germanic tribes in this northern region occupied by Rome. Knowing that Ghana, a high-ranking member of this tribe, happened to visit Rome while Tacitus was there, it's been suggested that the historian may have taken the opportunity to interview her on the topic of her people's religion. In his Germania, he notes how the Semnonists view themselves as a particularly ancient and noble people. And then goes on to describe... A grove consecrated by the auguries of their forefathers and by immemorial associations of terror. Here, having publicly slaughtered a human victim, they celebrate the horrible beginning of their barbarous rite. Reverence also in other ways is paid to the grove. No one enters it except bound with a chain as an inferior acknowledging the might of the local divinity. If he chance to fall, it is not lawful for him to be lifted up or to rise to his feet. He must crawl out along the ground. All this superstition implies the belief that from this spot the nation took its origin, that here dwells the supreme and all-ruling deity to whom all else is subject and obedient. Before we finish with our classical sources, there's one more account that's even more brutal. It involves priestesses of the Chimbri people, a fearsome tribe responsible for what was called the Terror Chimbricus, felt by those on the Republic's German borders. For 12 years, from 113 to 101 BCE, the Romans fought to subdue them in the Chimbrian War. 
in which the Cimbrians fought alongside the Teutons. Though they are widely assumed to be a Germanic tribe, they seem to have mixed somewhat with the Celts on their long migration from Denmark's Jutland Peninsula down through the mainland and over the Austrian Alps and finally into Gaul. It's not exactly clear to what time or place the described customs attach, but the account comes from the Greek historian Strabo's Geographica, written sometime before the year 23, and he does acknowledge the use of older sources in his description. The Chimbri, during their expeditions, he says, were attended by priestesses who were seers. These were gray-haired, clad in white, with flaxen cloaks, fastened on with clasps, girt with girdles of bronze and barefooted. Sword in hand, these priestesses would meet with prisoners of war throughout the camp and would lead them to a large brazen vessel. They had raised a platform which the priestess would mount and then, bending over the kettle, would cut the throat of each prisoner. And from the blood that poured forth into the vessel, some of the priestesses would draw a prophecy, while still others would split open the body and form an inspection of the entrails, would utter a prophecy of victory for their own people. Though there are uh, naturally fewer accounts as we move chronologically up into the Dark Ages, there are a couple worth mentioning. From the Eastern Roman Empire, there's the 6th century scholar Jordain, whose history of the Germanic Goths has some interesting remarks about witches or priestesses in Scythia, probably in uh, modern Ukraine. He describes how King Philimer, the fifth ruler of the Goths since they migrated from Scandinavia, expels from his kingdom women known as Halirunas, a word likely related to the Germanic hell or the realm of the dead, and then the runas part uh, referring to the word rune, which beyond the system of writing means secret, mystery, whisper. Another reference to related figures refers to the Germans settling in southern Italy, who are known as the Lombards, uh, from a word meaning Longbeards. The Italian writer Paulus de Iaconus mentions it in his uh, History of the Lombards and Goths, written around 790. It has to do with the Gothic tribe that became the Lombards, uh, thanks to a stunt in which their women confuse and help to defeat their enemy the Vandals, by dangling their hair over their faces to impersonate male soldiers with long beards, hence the name. Uh, I'm not going to explain it any better than that, uh, even as Diaconus says, These things are worthy of laughter, and are to be held of no account. What's uh, more important here is the character, who's named Gambara, the one who suggests this ploy. Uh, Diaconus uh, refers to her as a leader or mother of the people, but also uses the word civil, meaning a prophetess, and the Latin uh, fitonissa, usually translated as witch, a word that's related to the uh, Pythia or oracle of Delphi. This account, written in the last years of the 8th century, 
and uh, demonstrating an awareness of this vulva-like role within Germanic tribes brings us uh, chronologically closer to the first of our Scandinavian accounts. The earliest of these, written anonymously, probably around 960, is the Völuspau, uh, which literally translates as The Prophecy of the Seeress or more specifically of the vulva. The importance of the vulva's role in Germanic culture is here emphasized by the fact that it's Odin himself, disguised as an old man, who seeks out her prophecy. Her revelations constitute the entire text of this old Norse epic poem. The uh, utterances of this unnamed vulva actually go beyond what we would normally call prophecy, they do describe the apocalypse to come, Ragnarok, and Earth's eventual renewal, but they also delve into the hidden past, describing the very origins and structure of the Nordic Nine Worlds, Ymir, the giants, the source of Odin's knowledge, and the creation of the various races, pretty much anything and everything you learn in an introduction to Germanic mythology, making this obviously a very important text. A particular episode within the cosmological story, one that tends to make its way into fantasy fiction and games, is the war between the two races of gods, the Aesir and Vanir, the former being great warriors and the latter great magicians. The narrator of the Völuspáll seems to suggest this war has something to do with attacks upon a seeress by the name of Gulveg, who possibly, though not necessarily, could be the unnamed Vova who narrates the entire poem, and here are those verses. She remembers the war of races, first in the world, when Gulvig with spears they studded, and in the High One's hall burned her, thrice burned, thrice born, often unseldom, though yet she lives. Hadir, they called her, Whenever she came to the houses, a seeress skilled in prophecy, she observed the magic staffs. She performed Sadir whenever she could. She performed Sadir in a trance. She was ever the joy of an evil woman. It seems this passage is trying to describe the origins of Sadir, of magic, of the domain of the Vanir, and their leader, Freya. Hader, by the way, which becomes Gulveg's name when she's killed and reborn as a witch, likely explains why Hed or Hader is a common name for witches or seeresses throughout Norse literature. Though its portrayal of a vulva is presumably based upon prototypes in Germanic society, the Völuspál is uh, very much a story of the mythic realm. However, the saga of Eric the Red, which we'll now look at, provides a picture of the vulva as she existed in society, the most detailed portrayal we have, probably. It's an Icelandic saga in prose, not poetry, uh, one that concerns itself with the explorer Eric the Red. He was Norwegian by birth, later exiled to Iceland, and uh, discovers and sets up an outpost in Greenland, and was the first European to sail to the North American continent. 
The events described in the saga occur in the last couple decades before the Common Era, though the saga itself was written in the 13th century, presumably based on earlier oral traditions. It probably primarily reflects 13th century customs, but also probably tales told of the Volurian centuries gone by. Chapter 4, one of 14, is completely dedicated to the Sierras' visit to a farm in Greenland, where Torbjorn, one of Eric's sailing mates, has newly arrived. The seer's name is Torbjorg, and we're told she is the last living Volva in a family of ten Volur, uh, her sisters all now being deceased. Her visit to the farm is a seasonal ritual, as the text explains. It was a custom of Torbjorg in the wintertime to make a circuit, and people invited her to their houses, especially those who had any curiosity about the season or desired to know their fate. Good tidings for the future would be particularly welcome in the region, as it's been a time of scarcity, and the farmer Torkel has assembled several of his neighbors from nearby farmsteads to receive their predictions with him. He prepared for her a hearty welcome, as was the custom, whenever a reception was accorded a woman of this kind. A high seat was prepared for her, and a cushion laid thereon in which there were poultry feathers. Now when she came in the evening accompanied by the man who had been sent to meet her, she was dressed in such wise that she had a blue mantle over her, and it was inlaid with gems quite down to the skirt. On her neck she had glass beads, on her head she had a black hood of lambskin with cat fur. A staff she held in her hand with a knob thereon. It was ornamented with brass and inlaid with gems around the knob. Around her she wore a girdle of soft fur and therein was a large bag of animal hide in which she kept the talismans needful to her in her wisdom. She wore furry calfskin shoes on her feet and on her hands she had gloves of catskin, and they were white and lined within with fur. The use of cat fur may have to do with the fact that cats were strongly associated with witches and wizards, and also emblematic of the goddess Freya, a patroness of all things magical. There's a strong sense of the Volva's status in the descriptions of her being received on the farm. Now, when she entered, all men thought it was the bounden duty to offer her becoming greetings, and these she received according as the men were agreeable to her. Torkel is immediately eager for her to see his herd and answer questions about his fortunes, but she rather haughtily ignores him. She's led to her seat for a meal which is described in some detail, as is the special cutlery provided for her, all of which further convey the notion of the guest's special status. After the meal, Torkel once again attempts to wheedle a fortune or two out of the vova, but... She replied that she would not give answer before the morning, after she had slept there for the night. The next day is spent in... The preparations made for her which she required for the exercise of her enchantments. She asked them to bring to her those women who were acquainted with the lore needed for the exercise of the enchantments, and which is known by the name of weird songs. 
but no women came forward. Weird here in the Anglo-Saxon sense, as with Macbeth's weird sisters, uh, that is having to do with the fates or Norns in Germanic culture, or simply with fate and prophecy generally. And a note in place of the word vulva, this translation also uses spay, as in spaywife, the archaic Scottish term for fortune teller I mentioned. They do eventually locate a woman who can help. Then answered Gudrid, I am not skilled in deep learning, nor am I a wise woman, although Haldis, my foster mother, taught me in Iceland the lore which she called weird songs. As Christianity has already made some inroads to these regions, and Gudrid is a Christian, she is at first hesitant, but with some very strong encouragement from the farmers, she joins the company of women who will assist the Volva. The women formed a ring round about, and Thjorbjörg ascended the scaffold and the seat prepared for her enchantments, and then, then sang Gudrid the weird song in so beautiful and excellent a manner, that no one there did it seem that he had ever before heard the song in voice so beautiful as now. The Spay Queen thanked her for the song. Many spirits, said she, have been present under its charm, and were pleased to listen to the song, who before would turn away from us and grant us no such homage. As to the prophecy itself, suffice it to say that things in Greenland would be looking up. But what's more interesting is the destiny foretold for the character Gudrid. Thou shalt make a match here in Greenland, a most honorable one, and there shall arise from thee a line of descendants both numerous and goodly. As it turns out, Gudrid, who is an actual historic figure, does marry in Greenland and sails with her husband to what the explorers would call Vinland, that is North America, and where she gives birth to the first European born on that continent. The use of song in the ritual must be reminiscent of Gauder, as discussed earlier, and the elevated chair could echo the platform used in the bloody rituals of the Chimbrians, or even uh, Veleda's tower, which uh, rather than a sort of residence could have been a ritual platform, as it's actually only mentioned in the context of her handing down prophecies, a possibility, anyway. Another 13th century Icelandic saga with a seer as playing an interesting role is that of Øverod, usually called the Saga of Arrowod in English translations. The name, by the way, comes from some magic arrows the youthful Od receives from his father before he departs on some seafaring adventure. Uds left in the care of his father's friend Ingjad on a farm located in western Norway, where he will soon learn his destiny. Uh, as for the Volva in the story... There was a witch woman called Hade, who had second sight, so with her uncanny knowledge she knew all about things before they happened. And uh, we have that name Hade again, as in the Völuspal. She would go to feasts telling people their destinies, and forecasting the weather for the coming winter. She used to have a following of 15 girls and 15 boys. When Odd reaches the age of 17, his guardian gets it in his head to consult this fortune teller. He initially attempts to send Odd to invite her, but he refuses, and a servant is sent instead. 
most readers, by the way, find the hero of this saga to be something of a jerk through most of the tale, though he does mellow out a bit toward the end. Ingyad invites other farmers for an evening of fortune-telling, which, as in the Eric the Red saga, begins with a feast prepared for the visiting dignitary and her entourage. After the meal was over, people went to sleep, but the prophetess and her company went to carry out their night rituals. It's probably a good guess that the company of boys and girls in the Vovis entourage support her in the nocturnal ritual by chanting or singing weird songs, as our last narrative had it. In the morning, Ingyalt came to see her and asked how the witchcraft had turned out. After nearly all the guests have consulted the seeress, she notices something. What's that lying on the bench over there? said the prophetess. It's a cloak, said Ingyalt. It seems to stir a bit whenever I look in that direction, she said. It turns out to be Ud, who is literally hiding from his fate. When the cloak is pulled back, he grabs a stick to threaten the witch with bodily harm if she speaks of his future. Undeterred, she proceeds to tell his fortune. There are many more years in store for you than any other man. You'll live for 300 years, wandering from land to land. You'll have a reputation all over the world, but no matter how far you travel, you are going to die here on this farm. And that death will come from a most unlikely source. There's a gray-black maned horse, Foxy, standing near the stable. His skull will be the death of you. And for her troubles, the angry youth then leapt up and struck her so hard on the nose with a stick that her blood gushed onto the floor. As I said, he's uh, pretty much a jerk. But he is a man of action, so the very next day, he and his stepbrother kill the horse, Foxy, dig an extremely deep pit and cover it with boulders, thereby thwart his fate, presumably. Uh, free of this threat, he then sails off for a series of adventures, taking him from Greenland to Greece and Italy and the Holy Land. Along the way, he and his men encounter the uh, Heatherback and the other sea monsters in our Kraken episode. I believe I actually quoted the saga in that one. Um, around the age of 300, however, while sailing on Norway's western coast, he nears the farm where he spent his youth and, out of curiosity, goes ashore only to find the place now in ruins. The sea and winds have eroded the land, and it seems to have uncovered, of all things, a horse's skull. What do you think? asked Oot. Could this be the skull of Foxy? Oot prodded the skull with the shaft of his spear. The skull shifted a little to one side, and then, from under it, a snake wriggled out right up to Oot, and struck at him above the ankle. The venom started to work on him at once, and the whole leg swelled up to the thigh. Unable to walk, his men drag him back to the ship, where he announces that he feels his end is at hand, and that he will take his remaining hours to write an extremely long poem about his life, which is included in the text, a final annoying end to a somewhat annoying hero.
One last example from the Scandinavian text, this one in Latin, Gesta Danorum, or Deeds of the Danes, is a 12th century chronicle of the country by Saxo Grammaticus. The particular episode we're selecting from the volume concerns the early semi-mythical King Froda III. As we jump into the narrative, King Froda has uh, recently succeeded in stabilizing the region and decides to test the fidelity of his subjects by placing a golden bracelet in a public place where it might be easily stolen. And it doesn't take long for the bait to be taken. A certain matron skilled in sorcery, who had trusted in her art more than she feared the severity of the king, tempted her son to make a secret effort for the prize, promising him impunity, since the king was almost at death's door, his body failing, and the remnant of his doting spirit feeble. The son is easily convinced and steals the bracelet. Word of their actions soon reaches Throda, and he and his men pile into a carriage and head for the seaside home of the witch, planning to arrest her and burn the house. This the woman foreknew and deluded her enemies by a trick, changing from the shape of a woman into that of a mare. When Froda came up, she took the shape of a sea cow and seemed to be straying and grazing about the shore, and she also made her sons look like calves of smaller size. A uh, sea cow, by the way, is a walrus. This portent amazed the king, and he ordered that they should be surrounded and cut off from returning to the waters. Then he left the carriage which he used because of the feebleness of his aged body, and sat on the ground marveling. But the mother, who had taken the shape of the larger beast, charged the king with outstretched tusk and pierced one of his sides. The wound killed him, and his end was unworthy of such majesty as his. His soldiers, thirsting to avenge his death, threw their spears and transfixed the monster and saw, when they were killed, that they were the corpses of human beings with the heads of wild beasts. So entered Froda, the most famous king in the whole world. The nobles, when he had been disemboweled, had his body kept embalmed for three years, for they feared the provinces would rise if the king's end were published. It seems they keep this ploy up for some time, hauling the embalmed king here and there in his carriage and collecting tributes where due, and all the while passing Froda off as... An infirm old man not in full possession of his forces. But when his limbs rotted and were seized with extreme decay, and when the corruption could not be arrested, they buried his body with a royal funeral in a barrow near Warrock, a bridge of Zeeland, declaring that Frodo had desired to die and be buried in what was thought the chief province of his kingdom. I am from California, and I honor the Norse gods. I am from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I honor the Norse and Sami gods. I am from New Hampshire, USA, and I honor the old Norse gods. I'm from Maine, USA, and I honor... There the certainly Norse are a lot of people honoring the Norse gods these days. Uh, clearly, there's been a booming interest in Vikings and Nordic culture as of late. 
Uh, beyond the interest in neo-pagan heathenry, we see it in films and television, gaming and fiction, and also as a sort of um, Instagram aesthetic, um, Viking makeup tutorials on YouTube, and even those uh, incomprehensible TikTok challenges with uh, Viking themes. But someone uh, particular caught my eye with a critique of what she called TikTok or uh, witch talk witches, the type of people who might ask. The gods uh, help me pick out my Starbucks uh, coffee today. The earlier testimonials about honoring the Norse gods come from the many listeners to a popular YouTube channel belonging to Freya Norling, host of a series called A Discovery of Nordic Witchcraft. And even if you don't believe in Seder, you probably agree that Norling is exactly how you'd imagine a Nordic witch. My name is Freya, and I live in the remote north of Norway with my three dogs, my huskies, Vixen, Skylu, my chihuahua, Jonas, and my partner, Daniel. We are YouTubers and owner of an esoteric shop called Alvebakken, translates the fairy hill on an island in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. Eight years ago, I ditched the city of London to move to the wilderness of Arctic Norway, living in the city and doing the nine to five. The channel is nicely done with lots of dramatic footage of the stark tundra and Norling brewing herbs and kissing wild reindeer and bonfires and northern lights and some straight-up mythology, and even interviews with uh, the indigenous Sami people whose uh, drum-centered rituals Norling has incorporated alongside her more uh, strictly uh, Norse material. I'll post a link to the YouTube channel for those who are interested in going a bit deeper into this. And I'll close out with a few more clips of her uh, peculiar witch-whispery voice as it seems to have its uh, own sort of uh, sing-song galder magic. Enjoy, with caution, of course. Whether you are a believer or a non-believer, I can guarantee you when you have a hex on you, belief has truly nothing to do with it. I have spent years studying and researching. A hex is intended for a person only the howling winds and the black tongues of ice could vocalize the metal with nature. But black metal is the most romantic music I have ever heard. It's in the depth of the fjords and lakes, along with the brutal winter. They call them the chaos magician of the traditional northern. They would walk anti-clockwise around the cemetery until they could look into the future or into one of the nine worlds shown in the windows of the church.
I do hope everyone's been enjoying our show and you might have the opportunity to leave a review if you did. We haven't had one of those for a while. We could really use one. It does help our visibility. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our lovely Patreon subscribers, one of whom, Joshua Shockley, is receiving the Blu-ray set we raffled off on May 1st. When you contribute through Patreon, you're helping to pay for the more than 100 hours of work I end up putting into each show. Pledge commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher receive a short extra episode, a reading from something in our library, the most recent being a um, 15-minute Viking story. I couldn't fit into this particular show. It's rather gruesome. Other rewards include access to our Patreon blog, downloads of the show Soundscapes heard under the narration, show scripts, my Krampus book, the bone-and-sickle candle, and unique hand-packed mystery kits, now including certain handcrafted items by yours truly. In honor of our fourth anniversary, I'll also be putting together a new t-shirt available exclusively to our patrons in the next couple of months. Our latest crop of supporters whom I'd like to thank include B.L. Ferks, Miranda Anderson, Dolan Cochran, Rapsuna Ross, and Christina Marta. I'd also like to thank Audrey Pearson and S.K. for making the jump to annual subscriptions. Bowden Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.